0: This week's episode is brought to you by Honeywell. Honeywell is a Fortune 100 technology company with operations in more than 75 countries. Building owners and operators in the education sector use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive facilities. Honeywell's solutions and services are used in more than 10 million buildings, including schools, worldwide. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn how Honeywell partners with schools and higher ed institutions to improve safety, security, and sustainability on campus. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. So there's an effort underway in Texas to build a brand new private university with a big, beautiful campus, libraries, and probably a manicured main quad, it's going to be called the University of Austin. This new startup university, it plans to be different than others. What it says will be a whole new university model. It's not going to have traditional academic departments, for instance. There's one particular aspect, though, that got a lot of attention when the University of Austin was announced about exactly a year ago. This new university, it says it's going to be devoted to promoting civil discourse and viewpoint diversity to avoid what its leaders see as liberal bias on most campuses that they say leads to a kind of cancel culture and groupthink rather than free and open inquiry. Last year at this time, the announcement of this university went viral. You probably heard about it. It was all over social media and even on cable news. Here's a clip from CNN.
1: With academic freedoms and discourse under siege at colleges and universities, a new kind of institution is needed to fix the situation. That's the provocative claim of a group of scholars and activists who are launching the new University of Austin, which they say is, quote, dedicated to the fearless pursuit of
0: truth. Along with all that attention, though, came some criticism. To some, it seemed like the goal was to make a university that just skewed in the opposite political direction even a couple of prominent academics who had signed up to advise this new university dropped out after about a week amid all this backlash. That included Steven Pinker, a well-known Harvard professor, who is also a best-selling author. All that noise around this institution has kind of died down. And I think a lot of people sort of forgot this university was out there trying to start. So I've been wondering, what is up with the University of Austin? or UATX as it calls itself, since you actually are not allowed to call yourself a university in Texas unless you're certified by the state, which they hope to eventually do. It turns out this fledgling university has been quietly working on raising money, finding land for its campus, and testing out its unusual model. How do I know that? Last week, I was down in Texas, and I sat down with the president of the University of Austin, Pano Canellis. I went to the university's temporary offices in a, a very nondescript office building that he joked looked like something out of the sitcom The Office. Before taking this role at UATX, Canellus was president of St. John's College in Annapolis, an institution known for its great books curriculum. And early in his career, he was a classroom teacher in a school as well. I started by asking Pano Canellus, what is the North Star of this new university, Basically, what is the main reason to start this university from scratch?
1: I mean, we say that the North Star of the institution is the fearless pursuit of truth. Um, obviously, you have to unpack that, right? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, most universities have truth or some variant of it in their, um, in their mottos or in their mission statement. And what we think <coughs> uh, what we think the purpose of a university is, and this will get to why I'm doing this project now, um, is to give human beings the ability to um, to better understand themselves and the world. So to develop what we commonly think of as critical thinking, or critical capacities. And in order to do that, um, you have to have a kind of let's say maximalist approach to the exchange of ideas. Uh, for human beings to learn uh, to extend their their the realm of their knowledge. Um, they have to explore. They have to be explorers. They have to go beyond what's comfortable, beyond what's familiar, uh, into uncharted territories. And um, and one of the things that, that inspired us um, was the state of higher education today, where it feels like um, the scope for that kind of exploration is becoming increasingly restricted or constricted. Um, for various reasons. I mean, I think there are complex social reasons for this, cultural reasons. Um, but the, the hope is that universities, uh, out of all places um, in our society and our culture, are places where we can be fearless as we pursue truth. So trying to create an institution that foregrounds that, that makes that its North Star, to think about what the pursuit of truth entails, what's possible in the pursuit of truth, what's impossible, and how we can um, extend the range of human knowledge in ways that are both fearless um, and, you know, maybe maybe even courageous. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's an inspiring mission. So, uh, you know, when I was offered the opportunity to, to start this institution with some others, it seemed to me that if we could if we can create an institution at this moment in time, this moment in time where there's so much polarization and confusion and partisanship and uh, uh, just a kind of, uh, you know, so many vexing problems around speech and around knowledge and that if we can create an institution that just um, tried to clarify what the pursuit of truth in the university context might be, we would be contributing something important.
0: I want to ask you this because I feel like it's at the root of of something that is is worth clarifying when when people hear that. because when you know, I guess do you think there's a risk of if you're concerned about an ideological bent mm. to an extreme at colleges, right? Um, but is there a risk that you end up creating something that is a bent the other direction and polarizes the other way? In, in a reaction to what you're, you know, what, what's going on at, in traditional campuses that I hear a lot about.
1: I mean, I, I think there, there's a risk to that. But I mean, if, you know, I mean, from the very beginning, we're highly aware of that risk and doing everything to avert that. So um, the problem is not that, you know, you'll, you'll often hear in sort of the, the media that, you know, the left has captured, you know, higher education. And it's, you know, a bunch of Marxist professors who are trying to corrupt the youth and all that. Um, that's not the problem. I mean, the left does, I mean, the left dominates higher education. Yes, The problem is simply political asymmetry as a phenomenon. The fact that, um, any institution of higher learning, if it becomes politically or ideologically asymmetrical, um, tilts things too far in one direction. It makes it harder to have, uh, open inquiry and and open conversations. And that applies on the right as well. So, if our purpose is to become, let's say, transpolitical, or or to sort of exist outside of politics, so that politics can be something we study, so it's not the operating system of university, then um, moving in the opposite direction, creating a, a conservative uh, institution, um, you know, would frustrate our ambitions from the very beginning. So, we have no intention to do that. Is it a risk? I, I think I think every institution is at risk of some sort of ideological tilting and you have to build in safeguards against that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think um, we can come back to this because it is something that's been in, in the media a lot, but I do want to ask as well about some of the other um, aspects, right? So you're looking for land <laughs> to build a physical campus, yep. which not all new models are doing, But yep. um, and when it's off the ground, what? Um, But I understand you want to have students starting even as early as next year, but when a campus exists as you want it to be, how will it feel different to a student who's Mm -hmm. on this campus and taking classes?
1: Yeah. So I think um, the, I don't know that the campus itself will be radically unconventional. I mean, we want to build a a beautiful campus. I think beauty is a prerequisite of, of learning. And and so we want to build a beautiful campus.
0: won't park, it, won't like of no, it won't be an office park, like some um, of the University uh, Phoenix or something.
1: No, it won't be an office park. Although we may start off in a place that isn't our permanent location as a kind of transition. And that may be, you know, more as as our offices are here, more Dunder Mifflin than we would like. Uh, but our intention is to build a beautiful campus. Um, because, you know, again, it's it's part of it's creating an atmosphere that sort of sets um, the the let's say, sets the process of learning outside quotidian concerns, right? You wanna create an atmosphere that allows students, faculty, staff um, to exist askew from, uh, from society, from the general culture, so that they can learn how to create some distance and reflect upon what's happening in the world around them. Like, okay. like, like a St. John's does. Like, uh, like St. John's, right. So I think, I think most places do this, and uh, at least ones with with, with traditional campuses. campuses yeah. So I don't know that our campus itself would be constituted in a way that um, is radically different than others. But I think campus culture is something that may be different. Um, you know, I mean, we we believe very strongly that for us as, as a kind of as a country, as a culture, as a world to um, to pull back from from the, the kind of heated um, no holds bar politicizing of, of, of everything, Mm -hmm. um, from the kind of zero sum game mentality that we all seem to be inhabiting. And again, I think this is, I think there's universal blame for this. I'm not blaming any particular, um, group or party or that to pull back. Um, you have to, you have to kind of renew a culture of, of civil discourse, renew a culture grounded in, in trust and grace and understanding, And you can't do that unless you actively cultivate that kind of culture. So, you know, from the moment a student enters our campus, maybe probably even before they come, we're going to be very intentional in thinking about how do you build cultures of conversation? How do you build cultures of trust? What sort of things do we need to do as students, as faculty, as a campus community um, that will allow us to get to know each other as human beings in the deepest possible way so that we can then engage in the kind of vexing questions that humanity faces. Because I think we have this often backwards. Um, in the culture day, what happens too frequently is that we meet each other over contentious issues and we uh, meet each other as strangers. And so what, the exchange that we have is one of kind of um, anonymity and, and conflict. Right. If we get to know each other as human beings, if we get to um, trust one another and then and then engage in conversations that may be difficult or contentious or that, they have a very different tenor. At that point, you have the ability actually to listen, to, um, to find ways to cross over um, from, from one idea set to the other, to learn together, to change your mind, because you're engaging another human being. I mean, it's, it's been the, the radical dehumanizing of discourse. Uh, that I think is the root problem we have today, both in the culture at large and I think to some extent in universities.
0: Okay, so this is the perfect time to ask about something you've actually done, right? Because a lot of your university is still in idea phase. But this summer you did these two-week summer courses Mm -hmm. called Forbidden Courses. Yeah. Very intriguing name. Um, And they were on um, subjects that I looked on the website. Critical thinking and free expression was one of them. Psychology of social status. One was called "Learning from Native Sons: The Pain, Rage, and Hope of America's Most Loyal Critics," and sort of why these courses, but also why do you think these would be forbidden at a traditional campus, and how did you do a culture there that, that yeah, would that would get at what you're saying? Right? Thank,
1: thanks for bringing that up because I think that's a great example of this. So, um, first of all, we call them forbidden courses because we're trying to attract young people from other universities, and if you tell young people something's forbidden, it's automatically attractive. Uh, Not
0: just young people. All of us, right? Right. So it's it's
1: a bit bit cheeky, but what we really really meant is forbidden in the sense that um, uh, we wanted to have conversations that don't often fit comfortably into um, the, the campus environment or cultures where students find that they find today. So things that people are hesitant to talk about or at least hesitant to express their own opinions about or that to create a space where that could actually happen. Um, so, um, so that was, you know, that's how, that's why we use that particular cipher. But, um, so how do we, how do we make this up? First of all, one of the things that amazed me was the volume of interest in this. So we were not sure when we launched this, we we're only about six months into the university project at that point, And I I told our team, I'm like, look, if we're going to be a university, we have to do the things the university does. We have to have students and conversations and faculty, and even if we're not yet, authorized to grant degrees we're, we're doing you know we're going through the application process now but we're not but we should we should have the kind of conversations we want to have and start practicing them now so we can pilot um the kind of courses and the kind of community that we want to create so you know i i, I told everybody let's let's just let's just barrel forward and this summer let's invite students from other universities invite some um interesting faculty and let's have some discussions let's have a couple of weeks of um seminars around topics that are um uh that we know will be challenging whether it's you know uh, uh gender or race or empire, you know, and let's find a way to have great discussions around this. So um so we set up the program and we put it on our website and I was I was kind of worried that you know we weren't gonna get enough students because you know I mean we, you know a lot of people are watching what we're doing, they're interested in what we're doing. And I thought it'd be radically embarrassing if we couldn't get enough students to fill our classes. And we had, they were small, 40 students each week for two weeks. So we had about 80 spots. Um, so we, you know, without really any marketing, uh, we just put out a call for applications. Um, and and in the first couple of weeks, received 44,000 inquiries from students from around the world about these courses. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and that to me was a sign. <laughs> That uh, and you know these are all students at other universities that they're really interested in in what we're proposing. They're interested in finding a way to have conversations. Um, they they have a, a strong inclination to have conversations on difficult topics in a civil manner. They just they want to do this, and they're willing to give up part of their summer and travel from wherever they are to give it a shot. And so, you know, by the time we we went through all our applications and accepted students, we had applications from around the country, around the world, elite universities. The number one university for applications was Stanford, you know, followed by Harvard. We had applications from students who were at community colleges, some who were at international universities, both elite like Oxford and Cambridge, but also smaller universities in places like South Africa and Australia had them from all over. And so um, it was actually really difficult to sort of sort through all those applications for how to bring. So part of the community building began even before they came here. It was a process of communicating to students what the value set was, that you know we're creating an institution that is going to welcome people from across the spectrum of, of uh, political uh, inclination, belief, experience. But the intention is to create a community of conversation. So that's what you'd be joining if you joined us. So there's a selection process there, and then in the actual selection process, because they, we had them write a series of essays and we had them um, talk about you know not only their interest in the program but uh, the the experiences in their lives that prompt them to to want to engage in, in this kind of program, uh, and that told us a lot about who they were, where they were coming from, the kind of uh, um, idea set they would bring to the table. we were very careful to curate a group of students um, who we knew had different things to say to each other.
0: Yeah, it sounds like from the video on your website, some may have been people who are actively supporting Trump, some others Black Lives Matter activists. Entirely.
1: Entirely. And and everything in between and beyond. Uh, You know, I mean, you know, we had one kid who came and told us he was a committed monarchist. And from Europe, he you know he he believed that democracy was overrated. He was a monarchist, and then we had a kid who was an anarchist. So I mean, you have like the the spectrum, right? Um, and and bringing them together, you know, and and in in a kind of giving them an opportunity to to know that everybody else is there for the same purpose um, lowers their guard. And then on the first evening, for example, at a banquet, um, what we did was we had. Uh, a, a, Peter Bagosian professor, you probably have heard of him, who um, you know, is a uh, let's call him at this point a cultural critic at this point, who thinks a lot about these issues. He's been through a lot, um, who who has a a kind of, let's say, approach to having difficult conversations. He has, I think it was like 13 rules for difficult conversations. We had, we just he Peter talked to them the night before and he went through 13 rules for having difficult conversations. So one rule, for example, was when listen to what somebody says, and when you respond don't say, but say, and so, you know, you say, somebody says X, you say, uh, I hear what you're saying. And here's what I have to say. Little things like a tiny strategies that create a kind of, let's say a rhetorical ecosystem that changes the tenor of conversation. So we had that and we had all these students who were eager. And then we brought in faculty who, um, who were, you know, who understood what was at stake, that their job was to cultivate conversation, not to profess some sort of expertise. Um, so you, you just create the, the ambient environment for these things to happen, and they happen. And so the conversations that we had in that group were extraordinary. The, the students universally left, you know, because you talked to them and you surveyed them and said this was, you know, this was the experience that they hoped they would have at a university. Um, of their own accord without any prompting for us they've already formed the UATX Alumni Association and they and and they're evangelizing for us out there. they're writing things about the university. I think 98 percent of them whatever that was said that they would have applied to UATX if we were running when they were applying to colleges and that so for so for us that was proof of concept that you can get together and you know an intellectually, pluralistic group of students from different places, different backgrounds and experiences and have a co- common purpose. And, you know, that purpose really is, it's not talking about empire. It's not talking about capitalism or race. It's talking about the stuff that lies behind those issues. And that's like, what is really true about the human experience? What is, you know, what is it that we can say about the human experience that, that rings true to us? What answers are better? What answers are worse when we ask questions? That's the the kind of epiphenomenon we have up front, these sort of topics that we always want to talk about. Really, they're behind them. Behind them is something even more important, and that is just the general question of what does it mean to be a human being and how should we live our lives?
0: After the break, how does this university fit into broader conversations about what college is for? Like, how will this get students a job? Stay with us. Honeywell Building Technologies is transforming the way every building operates to help improve the quality of life. School districts and higher ed campuses use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive campuses. Schools today require a dynamic approach to managing the learning experience. And Honeywell can help ensure yours makes the grade. Did you know that the federal government has allocated billions of dollars to state and local government entities For building improvements, funding is available for solutions such as safety and security, sustainability and energy management, cybersecurity, and more. Honeywell's team of funding experts can help identify funding opportunities that may be available to you to meet your school's needs. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn more about how Honeywell partners with schools to create energy efficient, innovative, Secure and resilient campuses. Now back to the episode. It feels like it's not about the curriculum in that in that way. Where it's not like you're gonna you're gonna say your proof point as a university is that you're gonna have you know more Nobel Prize winning people that know more than the Stanford or whatever. Mm-hmm. It it seems like that's not even your metric. You're trying to do this civil discourse aspect so why what is the the idea then that that why is that so important in the context of people coming in and a lot of we hear a lot about people wanting to come to college to get a job yeah and and how does that fit into this other narrative that's huge right now and you hear it i'm sure as you watch you know read anything in the in the media about like students want jobs they want they want to know stuff and get skills and then go get something like how does this fit into that that picture
1: um look i think i think Getting a job is very important. Um, And and I think universities play um, an indispensable role in preparing their graduates for what comes next and what comes after. Uh, But I think the thing we're really trying to prepare them for is not their first job or a career. It's this thing called human flourishing which includes that first job and the career that follows, right? So you're trying to give them a broader perspective on themselves and on the world. So as they, um, you know, as they follow this pathway through their university of education, they're learning things that are, that have kind of instrumental value. Like how do you code or, you know, uh, how do you speak Arabic or whatever it is, things that, that give them certain knowledge or skills But they're learning, more importantly, who they are and what the world is like so that those skills can be shaped towards a particular end. Um, You know, and in fact, one of the novel things that we're developing at UATX is what we call the Polaris Center. And the Polaris Center is a four plus um, year long experience that basically is about, let's call it vocational discernment and professional preparation under the umbrella of human flourishing. So, you know, how do we, how do we help our students um, bring their greatest skills and abilities to the world's greatest needs? Uh, And so we think about that before they even arrive. So before they even come to the university, there are now, you know, the summer before we have a, we're going to have a Polaris retreat where we're going to be thinking deeply about the meaning of work. Thinking about the, the the kind of fundamental relationships between human beings and society, and answering asking big questions, so that as they come into um, their formal course of academic study, and they're thinking about what it is that they want to study, they're not picking majors. We're not really even going to have majors. They're thinking about what kind of um, what their personal north stars. That's why I call it Polaris. You know, what is it that they hope to achieve over the long run? What is wh- who? Who are they and what do they have to contribute? And we're trying to give them that directionality. And so everything that they do during the course of their four years is um, not simply about building particular skills or even, let's say, kind of the the attainment of kind of, let's say, academic, um, typically academic knowledge or expertise, but about self-reflection and critical reflection. Uh, Because that's what higher education is really about. Higher the the difference between higher education and K through twelve education is K through twelve is primarily about content and skills. How do you how do you prepare young people with the skills to navigate the world? Fundamental skills like numeracy or literacy, and then more complex skills. Higher education is okay. Now that we're armed and we have the capacity to do things, how do we discern what is best? How do we learn prudence? How do we learn wisdom? So that we can apply ourselves in ways that are appropriate for who we are and what the world needs.
0: You know, I, you've also said as you launch this uh, that um, and that you are looking for that, that you're worried that there's too many administrative costs in running a traditional university these days, and um, and but meanwhile we're we are seeing more and more services and 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 facilities at at universities but lately there's been a lot of talk of things like mental health services and and this tough time and and as a more diverse population is coming to traditional colleges um how do you balance what's the right balance for you in like trying to keep your costs down but also these other needs in the uh, right now for for in higher ed i think you got to separate those things i mean look i mean our our intention
1: is to meet the deepest human needs that our students have. Okay. Those human needs do include pastoral needs, care, uh, intellectual development, uh, socialization, like those sorts of things. Right. So I think mental health falls under something. I think that's sort of essential. That's different from sushi bars and climbing walls. I see. Right. And so, I mean, if you look at the way universities have developed, you know, There's a, there is, you know, I'm not the only one that says this. I mean, there is an amenities arms race to attract students. Why? Because um, the truth is that it's, it's a buyer's market. There are fewer students seeking higher education today than there have been traditionally in the past. Even, I think it's a million and a half fewer students than even we had a few years ago before covid um, but this trend has been going down over time. Everybody knows there's a demographic cliff coming in 2025. And so schools are increasingly um, agitated about this and trying to compete with one another for students. And, you know, nobody really touts the academic differences between institutions. I mean, if you go on a set of college tours and you visit 10 campuses, you're not really going to learn very much about the academic differences between institutions, maybe one has a program that another one doesn't have, et cetera. Um, What they're going to foreground for you are, you know, the brand new cafeteria or the shiny workout center or the, you know, the successful football team.
0: Will you have any of those things?
1: No, none of those things. Um, Because I think all of those things are extraneous. And if we're going to, if, if you believe as I do that the cost of higher education is an ethical problem, not just a financial one, um, then, you know, with a clear conscience, we can't build a university that's amenities oriented. All right, I mean, if other universities have become cruise ships, you know, we still wanna be the wind-driven schooner that's gonna kind of glide across the water. Um, You still get to where you're going, um, but the experience you have along the way is different. And, uh, you know, so for us, I mean, we will have, like I said, I want a beautiful campus, but beauty isn't necessarily luxury. Those are different things. Um, so, you know, we want something that's beautiful, that is, um, sort of, you know, rather simple, uh, a university that focuses, uh, extraordinarily, um, is extraordinarily focused on, on the academic side of, of, of the equation. And I think that that, that's what students need. Even if even sometimes it's hard to see that when you're an 18 year old and you're kind of going through college, you're looking at brochures, you know, you know, you think about how students are processing all this as through all the marketing and that, you know, what is it they're really looking for? And I'll, I mean, I'll say, I mean, this is something I learned at St. John's. I think St. John's college, which is, you know, a uh, uh, Spartan, uh, great books college, right. That is, is pretty amenities free, um, and really focuses on uh, the life of the mind. Um, Attracts absolutely wonderful students and and provides for them a transformational experience. I mean that's real. And when I was at St. John's, you know, we lowered tuition uh, for, for, by 33%, from by thirty three percent from fifty two thousand to thirty five thousand, um, partially trying to reorient cost and value. Uh, you know, we realized that we didn't need to be priced as a luxury good to compete with other institutions. That that there was a, um, a fairer price point that we could achieve. Um, and we did it. We did it in one fell swoop, and it was radically successful.
0: So, okay, so fewer athletic fields and no stadium. Um, as far as back to that, what's different about this campus um, than some others? But what about this idea on the website? You meant there's a mention of two years of, sorry, the website says there will be four years of University of Austin will be spent Two years of intensive liberal arts education, followed by two years of putting ideas into practice. Yeah. What will that look like? And you mentioned already that academic departments might be a little different or not.
1: Focus. Absolutely. So um, so we're not planning on having traditional academic departments. Um, are, we're going to orient the education around what we call centers of academic inquiry, which are more like research institutes, think tanks, et cetera. Um, thematically constituted, so we have one on politics, economics, and history, and one on education and public service. The idea is that the faculty who are gathered there are a combination of scholars and practitioners. Um, so they're com- they're bringing the, you know, sort of the world inside the university and outside the university together, and that the work that they do is going to be project oriented and applied primarily. So, you know, we will still have some, you know, historians sitting in archives writing, you know, books about, you know, the Habsburg Empire, probably. Um, but we'll have other historians who do something called applied history where they're thinking about, you know, history. Um, let's say history is applied to contemporary economic policy or something like that. And that that, that may be involved with, you know, um, advising the federal government in some capacity or another. So the idea is to... Um, to create academic units that share both theoretical and applied um, facets.
0: Um, And
1: cross-traditional disciplines. Cross-traditional disciplines. So, you know, so there's, so a, and and a faculty member may move between these different centers. So, you know, you may be, um, let's say you might be a philosopher interested in, um, I don't know, the history of, of education and teach for a couple of years in our Center for Education and Public Service. But then, you know, sort of double down and you've, and you've been reading Rousseau a lot and now you're thinking more about the political nature of, uh, you know, uh, educational policy and you and you go to work with somebody in the Center for Politics, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a kind of like, let's say, transdisciplinary model, you know, rather than silos, you know, I would just think of it as a Venn diagram with lots of interconnecting circles and lots of points of uh, contact and, and uh, overlap. Um, but for a student, uh, an undergraduate, the first two years will be spent primarily not in one of these centers, but in what we call the Intellectual Foundations Program, and the Intellectual Foundations Program is a you know very liberal arts centered program that essentially I mean if it if if it's sort of thinking about one question is it is um, you know uh, let's say a a, a, di- a diagnosis of of the modern human condition from different disciplines. So thinking across politics and the arts and the hard sciences and mathematics, what have we thought about over time as human beings? What are the great questions that have driven us forwards, sometimes backwards? Um, who have we identified ourselves to be at different points in history? Who are we today? Uh, what is this thing called modernity or post-modernity? What kind of world do we live in? And, and the idea is that this is a um, single curriculum that all students take concurrently. So you take it as a cohort together. So there's a common intellectual experience. Um, and again, it's, it's interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, mostly based around discussions and reading primary text, um, but there'll be some lab components in that as well. Um, the, you know, the, the reason to have this kind of common intellectual experience is, you know, this goes back to the earlier question we talked about, creating a community of conversation and trust, when you're all reading the same stuff at the same time, your roommates, your friends, you know, the people you're on intramural soccer with, then you sit down at dinner, you know, you're going to be, you're not going to be talking about the Kardashians. You're going to be talking about Hegel because that's what you're reading. And it creates a, a kind of, um, uh, let's say a meta curriculum that, that, uh, enriches the entire experience. And, And I think strengthens the bonds, intellectual and social between students and faculty, because all the faculty have to teach across these different topics as well. So for the first two years is that that kind of, let's say primary liberal arts oriented experience. And then students will um, become junior fellows in one of the academic centers of inquiry. And they're gonna be thinking more about specific um, uh, ways to uh, approach questions of applied human knowledge Mostly directed by what we call the Polaris Project. So each student will be developing a project across four years. That's like a moonshot project, you know, something that, you know, um, uh, that they may or may not achieve in four years or ever. But it's the thing that they that that they want to kind of dream into the world. Is there so an example of one of these? So I mean, the the example that I often use because a student approached me with this example was a student came to me and said, "You know, I want to be an engineer, but what I really want to do is I want to." Uh, I really love robotics and I'd love to create like a robotics delivery system for vaccines for the next pandemic. I'm like, that's a great project, you know? So imagine if that's your goal and you know this, you know, beginning of your freshman year. So all the coursework that you're taking and all the extracurricular things and internships, you're thinking about that endpoint. Like, what do I need to learn to do that, to achieve that? What do I need to learn to both in a technical sense, but let's say maybe in a business sense to make something like this viable or, um, you know, even in a kind of uh, maybe a biomedical sense, you know, what are, what are the pieces of knowledge that I need to put together to achieve that goal? And so the students are pursuing the Polaris projects across four years, developing it and designing it early on. And then when they get to the centers, much, the, the centers become an active place for this kind of research and development to happen. And then they're mentored by faculty and mentored by people outside the university and the goal is to get as far as they can. Like, you know, that, that student may not actually develop the robot by the time they leave, but what they've learned along the way is gonna enable them to become the person who can do that someday or do something like it someday or something even better. And that's the idea of education. It's not, education is to launch students into the world with a kind of, um, you know, a momentum, an intellectual momentum, but also let's say an experiential momentum that will allow them to achieve their highest
0: ambitions. It sounds like you're trying to answer that, that age old question of like why do I need to learn this as they go through their more um, general interest uh, yeah. learning.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it it all pertains. I mean even if you're um, sort of early on reading something that seems to have no bearing upon this. Let's let's stick with this idea of this you know robotic uh, vaccine delivery system. Um, you know, let, let's say you're doing a, a, a work of um, a, a philosophy um, that's thinking about, uh, the question of, um, you know, utility, you know, what, what's the highest good? Is it you? Do, is utilitarianism the highest sort of good, the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Um, how does that apply to, let's say our approach towards technologies, you know, is, is, should technology have that as its, let's say primary, uh, endpoint, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, or is there some version of technological advancement that, um, that that, sh- that don't or shouldn't, that should be more focused in their application? Or is there is there a beauty in developing something just because we can dream it up? So there's sort of philosophical questions that underpin even rather practical courses of, of study.
0: You know, one of the things that I, I understand in, in this, it's not, you're, just, you're not just trying to add a campus to the world, it sounds like. You're really thinking about a model. Yeah. So what is your, where do you see this leading toward more, more impacting higher ed more generally? Yeah. I, I mean,
1: I think what we're, what we're trying to do, I mean, I think there's, I would say, it's sort of three intertwined crises that are facing higher education today. And I think they're manifestations of broader cultural crises. But I mean, the first is kind of what we, what we started talking about is, you know, we've, we're losing the ability to um, relate to one another um, in the most human and humane ways. And um, and this is this has become very true at universities. And and this, it, when this happens at universities, the whole system kind of breaks down, because the reason we get together in universities is because human beings need to be together and exchange ideas to advance knowledge. Otherwise, we could just all stay in a basement. And that, but we know that that doesn't work. So that's one piece of it. The second piece we've also touched on is the kind of financial model of higher education. It's unsustainable. Uh, the cost curve for higher education is rising so much more rapidly than the ability of families and society to pay for this thing we call higher education. So we have to, you know, we have to find a way to uh, realign um, our capacity to pay for education, bring resources to it with the cost of education. Um, And so that's something we're really pushing hard on and challenging because that's an important thing. And then the third piece, which we were just talking about, is the kind of curricular model. You know, um, I mean, I will, you know, I've I've said this publicly, people get angry when I say it, but I think the age of the college major is dead. All right. The the college major is an artifact over a century old. I mean, the last time we saw, um, you know, let's say a sort of surge in the founding of, of great universities was the turn of the 19th and 20th century. When you saw places like Chicago and Hopkins, and like Stanford, University, of Chicago, or the university yeah. of Chicago, when they were founded, and they were founded because at that time there was a kind of ad- adoption of the research university model, which, um, which mostly came from Germany, with the idea that um, that there were these very specific disciplines that you should be studying, and um, and pursuing knowledge within a very kind of let's say rigidly scholarly framework. Uh, and that's that's where the whole system of, of majors and departments kind of, got, uh, let's say, consolidated. Um, today, we know, for example, that, it, you know, I mean, I may get the percentage wrong, but it's something like 70 percent of people working today are not working in fields that they majored in. Right. Um, that you're going to go over the course of your life through five or six different career changes. So how is pegging for four years of your life, your professional development on something called a major, which only tenuously relates to an actual profession? You're a psychology major. Unless you're going to become a psychologist, you know, what are you learning? Well, I'm learning about the human human psyche, so when we become a lawyer, okay, that's fine. But, you know, so the curricular model we have really, I think, is um, too constraining. For, for the world that we live in, for students and for scholars and for people who make their lives within universities. Um, I believe, you know, I believe in disciplinary knowledge. I mean, my own discipline is uh, literature and drama, Shakespearean and that. I think it's wonderful to have colleagues and guilds and all that thing, all those things. But, you know, marrying on something like, let's say, an academic, academically and scholarly organized institution to preparing young people for human flourishing, those don't neatly match up. Uh, so we're trying to think about how we can restructure, reorient our education in the direction that we think it should be going in, which is, you know, again, towards that North Star of um, the pursuit of truth in the service of human flourishing.
0: I do have to ask, you know, it was about exactly a year ago that y'all announced the university and put out the idea and, and some of these ideas. but um, And there was... A, there was a focus and, and some negative attention because some of the, the initial people, um, and I'll give an example of like Steven Pinker at Harvard, you know, it's somebody who had was on an advisory board and then sort of stepped back because he saw some of the comments about it and the discussions about it, feeling like, I think from his public statements, feeling like it was going toward a more, you know, polarizing it in the opposite direction. And so how do you... I guess, do you hope you get him back? Or, like, do you hope to get the conversation I, back I, to where... Yeah, look, I'd
1: love to have Stephen
0: back. I mean, we, you know, we had
1: 36, 38 advisors we started. Yeah. You know, we lost two. So that's not... Especially given the fact that for the first 24 or 48 hours when we announced, we were the number one story on Twitter in the world. And you know what Twitter is, right? So you think about the kind of... You kind of kick the hornet's nest and all the attention you yeah, get and all there. the negativity, yeah. right? The fact that pretty much everybody stuck with us um, uh, through that, I think was a sign that they were committed to what we were doing. It, w- what happened and this, and, I, and I, I think I probably take the most blame for this. What what we failed to see in advance was um, uh, the contours of, uh, w- we thought we could stay outside the culture war by being an institution of higher learning. And, and what we didn't realize is the kind of gravitational pull of the culture. You just can't avoid it. And, you know, made some tactical errors. Like, for example, I didn't really know. I, I don't know much about Substack, but that's where we published our open letter because Barry Weiss is on our board. And I didn't know that some people think of Substack as being a politicized platform, for example. I didn't know that. Now I do, you know. And so so I think we did some things along the way that um, maybe um, gave the impression of some that we were, you know, we we're rolling up our sleeves and we're in here if, you know fight, you know, against this group or that group. And and that wasn't our interest at all. And it took a while for that to unwind. I mean, you know, one of the things we're saying is the world is hyper-politicized and partisan. We shouldn't have been shocked that we would have been put into categories by this hyper-politicized partisan world when we announced what we were doing. Um, it's calmed down. I mean, that's just not what's happening. I mean, a year later, um, people are curious about the model that we're talking about. We have, you know, um, most of the most of the interviews I do, most of the media that's out there is much more interested in the kind of productive and constructive things that we're trying to offer. Because um, we're not like I have no interest in a culture war. I have no interest in, you know, we're people are calling us like the anti-woke university. Like, who would build a university to be against wokes? What does that even mean? You don't build a you build a university to stand around stand for millennia. A couple hundred years from now, all of the, our current political concerns are going to be footnotes. People are going to have to look up. like, they're going to be like, what Twitter? What is that? It's like cuneiform or something, right? Like the things that, that we're so wrapped up in today will not matter at all what, when this university still exists. And so that's, we're playing the long game here. Um, but, you know, one of the part of our learning curve was how easily one can get entangled in the culture wars and how important it is for us to um, to transcend those you know the, the, those those conflicts and and to make a claim about the things that we're doing that is really authentically our own
0: you have an ambitious fundraising goal I have to ask it was like 250 million you want to raise how can you say how close you are or where are you are yeah
1: sure I mean you know we are um, we're over a hundred million now and counting right. um, which is far ahead of where we would thought we would be at this time um, and uh, and the support that we're that is coming in now. The first hundred million is the hardest. I've learned, you know, because what you have to do is you have to convince people that the project is um, is is taking root a and you are moving forward. Critical happen. mass. Yeah. And what we've seen with our fundraising is a kind of exponential rise. So that every month that number goes up. Ex. Well, maybe not exponential. I'd like it to go up exponentially, but significantly goes up. Um so I'm you know highly confident that we're gonna reach our goal. And that's just our first fundraising goal for the sort of beginning when we begin to bring students in in two years. We're gonna go well beyond that, but I'm you know totally confident that we're gonna reach that goal. When can I visit the campus? Uh well, we have um I'll give you kind of the campus update. Uh uh this is and it's not I'm knocking on wood here. Yeah, we can hear it. Uh we are uh we're going to begin, our plan is to begin with actually a downtown Austin location um, uh, that we've been negotiating for, a beautiful location downtown uh, that will allow us to bring in the first couple classes of students while we're developing our larger campus outside of Austin. It's a, I'm building a campus, as you might imagine hundreds of acres is a massive project and you know just the development piece alone takes a long time so to buy ourselves some breathing room we've already started that piece to buy ourselves a breathing room to to design and develop the campus um, we thought it'd be fun to start in downtown Austin uh, we just we were offered a kind of beautiful site near the river and we're like this is perfect for the for the short term and, uh, and maybe that will become a, a permanent site as part of our campus and we'd have a campus outside so so that will be what we should be um, occupying if all goes well, you know, sometime next summer preparing for students. And then um, I would love to have shovels in the ground for the main
0: campus by the end of next year. And that um, does, can you start applying for accreditation even with the downtown campus? And the absolutely.
1: Oh, absolutely. We're already well underway. There are two steps. The first step is that you apply from your state, so in this case, Texas, for what's called a certificate of authority, which allows you to grant degrees, and then once you have that authority, then you go for accreditation. You have to have something to accredit, and so that this this process takes you know about a year, and we you know we're in the middle of it now. Um, hopefully, we'll see that conclude you know sometime early to mid twenty three, and then uh, and then the accreditation process begins formally there, but. Much of the work you're putting into the Texas certification piece is is parallel to what you're doing for accreditation, right. so you you know you already have your runway going there. So, um, yeah, we will. Our our target has always been to bring freshmen in in fall of 2024, and we're still on target for that.
0: And this downtown campus is the location known. Is it a?
1: I, I I will, I'm not going to say yet because like I said, we're still, we're still finishing the terms of that. So, okay.
0: So I can't take the microphone there and be like, here we um, are. No,
1: there may be a last minute shift or something. I mean, I I don't think that's going to happen, but I, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, Uh, but I feel really excited about it. So when we, I'll send you pictures when we, when we get it.
0: But if you have one more minute, I have to ask what it means. You're one of the first Teach for America teachers, I hear. Oh yeah. And that's, like I said, we cover K-12 and higher ed. Do you think that, how has that shaped all, of all of
1: this. this. How does it, it change, change this? this? That's, That's a great a question. question. Or any, you know, your career yeah. and this leading to this, right? I'll tell you I'll one thing. I mean, Teach for America, you know, I did it straight out of college. So you were, yeah, you
0: were in a school teaching. Yeah. In fact, first in day. fact, in
1: Texas, they oh, sent Texas. me to the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. So sure. I was in a border community. Um, what it taught me, what it taught me was how absolutely hard it is to be a teacher. I mean, it was, it was literally the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I was teaching at a middle school and, you know, and, um, you know, a very, um, the, the, the classes they gave me because I was the, the new guy were the most challenging students at the school. And so under really challenging circumstances, and I was completely inexperienced. Um, so taught me how hard teaching is and taught me how, um, taught me a lot about the institutional challenges of education. You know,
0: all the stuff you couldn't control as a teacher. Yeah,
1: and so you sort of like, OK, hang on. Um, institutional decisions matter. There are schools that work well. There are school systems that work well. There's some that don't. They're not all built the same. So what is it? Like, what is it that works? And how do we, you know, how do we discern that? How do we come to better understand institutionally how to best educate students, whether it's K through 12 or higher ed? So these questions have been for me percolating for a long time. I'm sure the TFA people will be happy to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, it was really rough around the edges when I started. I was, I, was the yeah, st- I think the lot. second class. Yeah. And it was, I think at that time, only a dozen sites across the country. And we were the first group in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so it was all, um, you know, we were kind of making a lot of stuff, stuff up on site then. I think it's more polished now. I mean, I've had a lot of students over the years who've gone to TFA, so I've followed it. But um, it also, I think it also just, you know, it just showed me that... Um, Education needs vision. It needs people who can, who can envision better things, and and then implement that sort of vision. And I think that's inspirational. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that um, I'm not going to claim that the kind of vision I have or that we have is as will be as impactful as inspiring as Wendy Cope and TFA. I mean, who knows? But I think it's important for people to be ambitious in their vision, and. Um, and, and try to find, you know, try to find better ways for doing... There's nothing more important than educating, especially young, you know, young kids. I mean, higher education is very important, but K-12 education is essential.
0: Um, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate the time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: It was fun. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you have reactions to this episode or this idea that you want to share... Feel free to send them to me at jeff at edsurge.com or you can dial us on our new call-in line and leave a voicemail. The number is 202-990-8525. That's 202-990-8525. We might include your response in a future episode. You can keep up with the EdSurge podcast on our weekly newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com, click on the word newsletter at the top right. That includes links to more information about every episode. And make sure you follow the EdSearch podcast wherever you listen. We are releasing this episode on election day. So whatever viewpoint you hold, we hope you'll get out and vote. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.